Hello, and welcome to the latest episode in our podcast series focusing on issues affecting sponsors and fiduciaries of 401k and 403b defined contribution retirement plans. I am Josh Lichtenstein, an ERISA and benefits partner based in New York. I am pleased to be joined by Doug Allward and Meyer, the chair of our appellate and Supreme Court practice, who is based in Washington, D.C., and Amy Roy, a litigation and enforcement partner, who is based in our Boston office. It's great to be speaking with both of you again today. As regular listeners of this series may recall, Amy joined us for one of our earliest episodes in the series last spring to discuss the important Anderson v. Intel Corp. Investment Policy Committee case, which addressed the use of alternative assets such as private equity in defined contribution plans. And Doug and I covered the Northwestern 403B plan litigation in our sixth episode shortly after the U.S. Supreme Court decided to grant certiorari last July. Since the start of 2022, there have been some important developments in both of these cases, and so we thought it would be a good time to revisit them. After much anticipation, the Supreme Court issued a unanimous opinion in Hughes v. Northwestern University earlier this year, which vacated the Seventh Circuit's decision to affirm the dismissal of an ERISA lawsuit and remanded the case for reconsideration of the plaintiff participant's allegations. Consequently, the plaintiffs will have another opportunity to assert that the plan fiduciaries actually violated ERISA's duty of prudence based on the number of investment options they included on the plan menu, the decision to contract with multiple record keepers, and the decision to include investment options on the investment lineup that were allegedly high cost and yet allegedly underperformed. So, Doug, in our conversations about the decision, uh, you mentioned Northwestern as a missed opportunity for the court. Could you explain what you mean by that for our listeners? Well, thanks, Josh. Uh, and it's nice to join you again for another one of these podcasts. Um, when we spoke about the Northwestern case last summer, there was a sense shared by many, including me, that the court would provide some much-needed guideposts on what the applicable standard uh, for pleading uh, a, a breach of fiduciary prudence under ERISA would be in connection with management of a defined contribution plan. And going further, I think there was even a glimmer of hope that the court would adopt a more rigorous standard um, that would make it harder for uh, these types of allegations to survive and thus make it less attractive for plaintiff's firms um, outside of cases where there would appear to be some genuine issue regarding um, fiduciary governance. Unfortunately, in my view, the court issued a a narrow opinion um, and decided to kind of punt these issues back to the lower courts Um, without a lot of guidance on how to determine whether allegations like these uh, plaintiffs uh, are sufficient and to focus just um, on the facts of the case um, on remand. In that sense, uh, it feels to me like a missed opportunity for the court to, to clarify a really key procedural aspect of ERISA litigation and, and to stem the tide of these lawsuits. The court disagreed with the Seventh Circuit um, and ruled that the participant's ability to choose prudent options does not itself discharge the fiduciary's duty, both to A, conduct an independent 
evaluation to determine whether the inclusion of each investment option on a plan menu is prudent, and B, to continue to monitor whether each option on the menu remains prudent. Furthermore, if a fiduciary fails to remove an imprudent investment option from the plan menu within a reasonable time, then they would breach their duty of prudence. The, the court relied in its relatively short opinion on its 2015 decision in Tibble v. Edison International, which held in part that the fiduciary has a continuing obligation to monitor investments and, and to remove an imprudent ones separate from, in addition to, the fiduciary's duty to carefully choose investments in the first place. Some might look at the opinion and say that the court's reliance on Tibble and its recitation of the plaintiff's allegations without appearing to suggest that they were insufficient might provide lower courts with a doctrinal basis or some suggestion that they should permit more relatively thin complaints like this one to survive past the pleading stage. On the other hand, I'd like to highlight the last sentence of the opinion in which the court called for deference to fiduciary decision-making, and they acknowledged how, and this is a quote, the circumstances facing an ERISA fiduciary will implicate difficult trade-offs and courts must give due regard to the range of reasonable judgments a fiduciary might make based on her experience and expertise, unquote. So in that sense, I think the court attempted to find a middle ground. Uh, and given these counterbalancing principles, I, I don't think that this decision will actually move the needle all that much in this area. Thank you for the explanation and for all of those insights, Doug. Um, I see what you mean about it being a missed opportunity uh, after you explained all of that. So, but even though we didn't get the clarity that we were hoping for around the pleading standard, it does feel to me that the court's rejection of the Seventh Circuit's uh, rule is still significant. It seems to teach us that plan fiduciaries can't just effectively stick their heads in the sand and assume that their current lineups are safe because they offer some good, well-vetted options. Instead, they need to engage with the entirety of the plan's investment menu, continue to monitor each of those options like you were just explaining, and proactively remove or replace investments that the fiduciary has determined are no longer appropriate for the plan based on a sound and consistent benchmarking data and other diligence. Of course, you know, this requires more work from plan sponsors if they have larger and broader investment menus uh, versus a plan sponsor with a smaller, more streamlined menu. So put another way, it feels like the decisions are coming together to say that it's all about having a process, following that process, and documenting the process. This decision reiterates the importance of having a good process in place for evaluating investment options and for deciding when to remove and or replace certain investments as part of that ongoing monitoring. Of course, the process the fiduciary follows and the decisions that he or she makes are also gonna to have to be well-documented. While there's no way to guarantee that a plan sponsor won't get sued, taking these steps, it seems, could certainly help to mitigate the risk of a successful claim being actually brought by plaintiffs. 
And based on the Supreme Court's reasonable judgments language, which you were highlighting, um, it seems like having good documentation could help to garner at least some judicial deference in the event of a, a future lawsuit. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, Josh. Um, I absolutely agree that having a diligent process is critical, and even more so now in light of the Northwestern uh, decision. But, you know, I, as I've been thinking about this, um, you know, it seems to me that the court's decision rests to some extent on a, a pretty fundamental assumption that planned fiduciaries actually have uh, some freedom and, and, and ability to make changes and swap investments in and out of the lineup as they deem it necessary. Um, and by my understanding, you know, based on discussions with you and others, it's not clear that that assumption always holds up. And I guess I'm thinking, uh, for example, about individual annuity products uh, commonly found in many uh, college and university 403B plan options. Um, these types of products, as I understand it, planned fiduciaries um, may find themselves with their hands tied uh, due to an annuity provider's contractual provisions. They, they may be unable to make um, easy changes or swap plans out. Um, so I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what fiduciaries should be doing in situations with investments like that. I'm really glad you raised that issue, Doug, because this is really, uh, you know, a pretty challenging situation for investment committees or these types of plans. So, four through B plans, they have a long and complicated history, much more so than the 401k plans commonly seen at most private employers. And as a result, we often see a substantial portion of the assets of these plans invested in these kinds of legacy individual annuity products um, that you were describing, and they have complicated terms, and they limit the ability for the plan participants to reallocate or change investments once they're allocated, and are very limiting for the, for the plan sponsors. Um, Congress amended the tax code in 1974 to allow 403B plans to invest in a broader range of investments, such as mutual funds, similar to how 401K plans invest in mutual funds now. But many 403B plans still have assets held in these fixed annuities and variable annuities. And these are primarily offered by insurance companies. And especially for the older plans, there could be a significant amount of assets in these legacy accounts where the assets are they're held in these individual annuity contracts. And it leads to this difficult situation where their 403B plan sponsors can't just pick up and move the annuity contracts to another record keeper and just consolidate with a single menu of investment options the plan sponsor maintains. Because the participant is actually the annuity policyholder in these contracts, and they're in control of the contract, including any changes in who holds it. So in effect, the plan sponsors might actually feel powerless with respect to a portion of the 403B plan assets that are invested in these individual annuity contracts, and they're honestly probably right to feel powerless. So going back to the question of what can a 403B plan fiduciary actually do when their plans have these legacy individual annuity products and they can't remove them on their own? Well, I think there are three things to keep in mind. For one, 
the fiduciary may want to document that they have reviewed and explored any options for actually changing or modifying those annuity investments. As we always say, part of having a diligent process in place is having robust documentation of any review that a fiduciary is undertaking. And that remains true even when the documentation says that you have tried or found that you're constrained for making certain modifications to the investment lineup. Basically, if you're hamstrung, you know, you want to make sure there's a record that describes how and why you're stuck in this situation and make sure that you can show that you're periodically revisiting those products as the market changes and evolves to see if there are any changes that can actually be made. Second, there may be ways for you to engage in the sort of ongoing monitoring that the court describes in uh, the Tibble and Northwestern cases that you were talking about. For example, a fiduciary might decide to freeze participation in these legacy products that at least kind of stops the bleeding or the fiduciary may decide to freeze particular investments with respect to all new contributions. If a plan fiduciary working in consultation with their investment advisor determines that certain investments really don't meet the criteria that they've established otherwise for products to be offered on the plan's investment lineup, then I think that's a scenario where you really do want to be proactive. Well, you might not be able to force out the existing funds or contracts or products you're still modifying the lineup by taking the position that is no longer an actively available option on the menu for people to select. Finally, even if you can't control or remove the products, you should make sure that you're engaging in robust participant education. In this case, you might actually want to educate your participants about the different products and alternatives on the lineup, including the fact that they have the power to control these investments or move their money out of an individual annuity product in their capacity as the individual policyholder. And on that note, and as our listeners are well aware, um, participant-oriented materials often actually come from the insurance companies and vendors directly, and they feel very much like they're marketing materials, whether they're branded and educational or not. You know, it, they often do feel like they have this marketing spin. That said, Plan administrators and record keepers, um, they often do offer participant education more generally, which can also be helpful in assisting participants in better understanding and evaluating their own portfolios beyond just what they're getting from the vendors. And on the subject of process, I'd like to switch to the Intel case at this point. Amy, as we covered in the prior episode of the series, the underlying question in the Intel litigation is really whether the inclusion of alternative assets like private equity, hedge funds, and commodity investments on a DC plan menu constitutes a breach of ERISA's fiduciary standards. Um, both the 2021 decision from Judge Coe, as well as her latest decision from January, which we're going to talk about, to grant Intel's motion to dismiss the plaintiff's first amended class action complaint, never really got to the question of, is it appropriate to include these specific alternative assets. Can you elaborate on that, Amy? Sure, Josh. So Judge Coe's most recent decision in, in the, the now long-running Intel litigation is effectively a dissertation on choosing benchmarks. Um, as she explained in her decision, uh, the plaintiffs there failed in their amended complaint to, to quote, 
provide factual allegations explaining why their chosen benchmarks are meaningful benchmarks that have similar aims, risks, and rewards as the Intel target date funds, end quote. So instead of describing why the Intel target date funds have similar aims and risks and rewards as the plaintiff's chosen comparators, the plaintiffs only concluded that these comparators were, quote, common. For instance, the plaintiffs identified goals and features that were common to all target date funds, um, and in doing so, focused on characteristics such as you know, how a target date fund is a long-term investment vehicle uh, and consists of a, a combination of asset classes and how a target date fund has a glide path that reduces risk over time and is, is only moderately risky overall. However, the plaintiffs did not provide any information uh, regarding the investment strategies, glide paths, and fees of any specific target date funds with the same target date as, um, as the Intel target date funds. And so, uh, according to Judge Coe's opinion, um, courts have consistently held that conclusory allegations that funds have, quote, the same investment style or, quote, materially similar characteristics are just not sufficient to state a claim for relief. And without more factual allegations about how and why the funds the plaintiff cited were similar to the Intel target date funds at issue, um, the plaintiffs simply failed to identify meaningful benchmarks. And without finding a meaningful benchmark, a court is not in a position to evaluate um, whether an allegation of a violation of the duty of prudence is plausible because a plaintiff's comparison um, of apples to oranges is not a way to show that one is better or worse than the other. Thanks for explaining that, Amy. It, it's really interesting to hear that Judge Coe went into so much detail um, in going through these benchmarking issues. We don't often see you know, judges go into that level of thoroughness, and it's, it's really, I think, interesting and instructive. But going beyond the benchmarking issues, um, you know, the opinion also addressed flaws in the plaintiff's allegations that the Intel defendants breached their duty of loyalty under ERISA. What was it about these claims by the plaintiffs that the judge found to be problematic? Well, as, as the plaintiffs did in their first complaint, um, in their amended pleading, the plaintiffs uh, alleged that the Intel Investment Committee engaged in prohibited self-dealing uh, because Intel Capital, a subsidiary of Intel, had, quote, partnered with uh, investment companies such as hedge fund and private equity investors to co-invest in and secure sequential funding for third-party startups, end quote. In their amended complaint, the plaintiffs tried to bolster these claims by describing, uh, among other things, how Intel Capital, uh, Intel subsidiary, invested in privately held companies that supposedly benefited uh, Intel's business and that Intel used the Intel target date funds to incentivize these hedge funds to, to give follow-up funding uh, to, the, to the beneficial privately held companies. And the plaintiffs also alleged that Intel and Intel Capital invested in the private equity of companies that complemented Intel's business uh, and used hedge funds to, to come in and invest in those same companies when those same companies sought uh, a second round of funding. Uh, but even though uh, the plaintiffs expanded their breach of loyalty allegations in their amended complaint, um, Judge Coe still found nonetheless that they failed to plausibly allege that the planned fiduciaries acted in a way that, um, that aided Intel Capital in its venture capital investments at the expense of investors um, as they were required to do. In particular, the plaintiffs again 
um, failed to provide any factual allegations to support their claims um, that the aim of the Intel Plan Investment Committee's investment in private equity and hedge funds was to, was to aid its subsidiary Intel Capital uh, and its venture capital investments. For example, um, the plaintiffs never alleged that the Plan Investment Committee had any influence uh, over any investment for the firm's decision to invest in one of the startups uh, in which Intel invested. Um, the plaintiffs also failed to provide any factual allegations to support um, their claim that Intel uh, Investment Committee engaged in self-dealing. So according to Judge Coe, the plaintiffs really only pled factual allegations that at most support a potential conflict of interest, not a real conflict. Uh, and of course, the court has previously held that allegations that defendants may have a potential conflict of interest is just not sufficient to state a claim for breach of the duty of loyalty under ERISA. You know, that all said to me, uh, the bigger takeaway from this latest decision is that Judge Coe's um, comprehensive and uh, exacting evaluation of the benchmarks um, the plaintiffs offered tells us something about how um, courts uh, might evaluate these sorts of ERISA cases going forward. And I think it speaks to the deference um, that we would generally expect a judge to show uh, for planned fiduciaries who had a good process in place. The outcome of that process doesn't have to be um, right, so to speak, um, in terms of generating the best performance, as long as the fiduciaries have utilized um, a rigorous, objective, and diligent process for making those plan decisions, um, deference really ought to be paid to, to those fiduciaries. Um, this is actually a lot like the holding from the Supreme Court uh, that you and Doug were just discussing. And thanks for that, Amy, and thanks for sort of making that connection between the two cases. It's interesting to think about the, the common threads in you know, jurisprudence that we see in this area. Um, and you know, I agree also that you know, here the sponsor made a choice to use non-traditional, highly customized products as planned investments, which allegedly performed poorly. But even still, the process won out. I think it demonstrates, like you were saying, that fiduciaries should be able to construct a lineup for the participants that they think is in the participant's best interests, even if it doesn't adhere to industry best practice, or even if it doesn't actually result in choosing either the most conservative investments or the best performing investments. And it's really the process that matters. So from that vantage point, this decision may give some comfort to all the plan sponsors out there who are considering including alternative investments in their own defined contribution plan menus in various capacities, as long as they follow a rigorous and appropriate process in making that decision, and as we've said a number of times over this podcast, documenting that decision. I think that if you read the opinion in conjunction with the DOL's 2020 information letter, on the use of alternatives in 401k plans, and the statement that the DOL issued just at the end of December, which clarified that it did not materially change the guidance from that information letter, then fiduciaries who are attentive to process should take at least some level of comfort in knowing that if they use and incorporate these types of alternative investments in plan menu, then as long as they do it in a manner that is sort of you know rigorous and documented, that they might not necessarily get second guessed by a judge if it gets challenged in court. 
So on that note, the DLO supplemental statement actually leaves in place its view that a plan fiduciary would not be violating its duties under ERISA solely by reason of offering a professionally managed asset allocation fund with a private equity or other alternative component as a designated investment alternative subject to the conditions set forth in that 2020 information letter. The statement goes on to address concerns they raised about the applicability of the 2020 information letter to certain smaller plans and fiduciaries by emphasizing how plan fiduciaries that are going to select or evaluate a product that includes alternatives like PE needs to have the particular skill, knowledge, and experience to be able to actually evaluate the performance and fees of the underlying um, products and underlying portfolio of investments. In other words, if a fiduciary does not possess the expertise necessary to evaluate these products, then they may need to seek assistance from an investment manager or other investment professional who does have the requisite experience. Oh, I think we've covered a lot of interesting ground, and I think it's also nice that we were able to explore some of the connections between these different cases. And with that, I want to thank Amy and Doug for joining me today and sharing many valuable insights about these two important cases. For more information on the topics that we have discussed, please visit our website at www.ropesgrade.com. And of course, if we can help you navigate any of the topics we covered, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can also subscribe and listen to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to being with you again soon.